Good morning. Morning. Um, you know, as we continue to meet throughout the fall, you guys, uh, I want to encourage you guys to show up earlier to try and sit up front. Um, believe it or not, there are folks, when they visit a church and they see it really packed and crowded, instead of going, oh, I really want to be here, they kind of go, oh, it's really crowded and don't want to come back. And so we want to encourage you guys to continue to do that. Many of you know we're planting a church in January we're going to have preview services January, February, March, and then start meeting weekly in Bronzeville. Um, one of the reasons why we're doing that, you guys, is to continue to reach out to more people. Uh, how many of you guys, you don't have to raise your hand, just think about how many of you guys have actively in your life right now, folks, that you know, whether they're Christians but walked away from God and not just attending a church or don't know Christ, who might be, who might be just reached by what new community is and what we're about? You know, and, and my question is, why are they not here with you if they're not here with you? So I want to continue to in, in encourage you guys. You know, come January, we're sending out a group of about 50, 60 folks. So there's going to be a big old space left open in this church sanctuary. And I'm hoping you guys will be able to fill as you continue to reach out to your friends and family. Amen? All right, so I was in California this past weekend, right? This past weekend. I was in Oakland and Sacramento. I got a chance to preach. Uh, did some mentoring of church planters. Got a chance to preach at a covenant church out there. It's a four-and-a-half-year-old church plant, 3,000 people. Uh, it's in Sacramento. Huge church, huge church. Three services. They just about killed me. Saturday night, Sunday morning, twice. Um, the church, the makeup of the church is like 60%, 70% African-American, about 20 25% Anglo, and then a sprinkling of, you know, white fo- uh, Asian folks and Latinos. But the church felt like a black Baptist church. And I loved it. <laughs> man, I had so much fun. I was telling staff, I had so much fun, man. I, you know, I, I, third service, I looked down and said, I wish I could bring y'all back to Chicago with me, you know. They were just... They were so friendly, so welcome. I had people talk right back, you know. It was just great. It was great. And then your pastor cussed in the middle of the sermon a couple of times, which wasn't very good. Yeah, so their, their, their leadership emailed me and said, well, it's not bad. You know, out of 3,000 people, one person, you know, a mom brought like a 12-year-old. And I didn't say anything bad. Don't, you know, so they're going, it, you know, I dropped a little word and, and uh, she didn't like that. And her 12-year-old daughter it was affected by it, and so they're not going back to that church. So, yeah, yeah. So I, I actually said to him, I said, you know, I say worse things at our church. So it's it actually, you know why I do that, right? You know why? Because I came to the States when I was 10 years old, and I'm not, you know, I'm not, on top of the whole language thing, you know, I don't know what's proper, what's not, you know what I'm saying? Okay. <laughs> Acts, chapter, Acts chapter 17. Open your Bible. Let's go. Acts chapter 17. I have a lot of ground to cover. Uh, we're not going to cover all the ground, but we're going to try and, and, and get through Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 16. This is perhaps one of the more well-known passages in all of the book of Acts. It is Paul at Mars Hill. Churches have been named after, after uh, uh, this text and, and incised into this text. Verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with them. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And that word babbler, you guys, in Greek, is literally seed picker. Seed picker. So they're 
they're totally uh, being derogatory towards Paul. They're literally imagining, you know, a seed picker, you know, a little bird just picking up seeds. And what they're saying is, you're not making any sense. You're like getting some ideas there, getting some ideas there, getting some ideas there. There's no coherent sort of thing to it. He's just babbling, Paul. That's what they're saying. You're a seed picker, right? Others remark he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about listening to the latest ideas. Does this sound lame or what? Right? Sitting around just talking about latest ideas. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So when they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. And a few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is God's word. Um, We have been talking in this sermon series about being a church on mission. And we've said that the foundation of this sermon series is that we have a God who is on mission from the very get-go. He has been on mission to reconcile men and women to himself, to forgive them of their sins, to redeem them. But also, God is in this mission to restore and renew all of creation. He calls us to be a part of that. Do you guys know that in real sense, real sense, we are all missionaries? How do you like that word? Do you like that word? I know, we got all kinds, you know, Western Americans, we think missionary and we think that random person in the jungles of, you know, Africa. But missionaries, being missional, the Bible says that all of us are on this mission. And, And by the way, being missionaries is something that we are, not something that we do. Okay, did you guys catch that? Being mission. In other words, being missional is something that we are. It's our lifestyle. It's what we do, not just something that uh, something we are, not just something that, that we do. Now, listen, be part of missional or be a missionary entails sharing the gospel, evangelism. Now, how do you like that word? Yeah. Again, we think evangelism and we think the guy in the street corner, you know, with the, with the megaphone or whatever, just blaring, you know evangelism, sharing, declaring the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is a vital part of us being missionaries. Amen? 
I know we got all kinds of hang-ups with that. I know. I know. And I hear them. I hear them. You know, I hear some people say, I don't have the gift of evangelism. It's not my thing. To which I go, I don't have the gift of hospitality, right? But I let people stay over at my house, you know? Otherwise, all of us have specific gifts and spiritual gifts that we normally and naturally function out of. But evangelism, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, is a commission, a command that's given to all of us. We also talked about how we do that according to our character, statutes, and personalities. Talked about relational evangelism. Anybody, any, I think, anybody could develop friendships with folks. Relational evangelism. Because evangelism, as we saw, it's a process. It's many steps. It's people trying on Christianity first. And they do that by being in relationships. I hear some people say this. Have you heard this one? I'm afraid of what people will think of me. Do you know what? If you think that, it's a very good sign. Do you know why? Because the thing that you're very afraid of, that you will offend them, so on and so forth, you already, you're, you're already sensitive. Does that make sense? If you're going, I'm afraid that I might say the wrong things, you're already sensitive to where they're at and their needs, so you're in a good place. And most likely, if you share with some level of wisdom and discernment, you won't offend them and so on and so forth. You, there's a sensitivity about it. How about, how, about, how about this? Some people say, I'm just going to live out my faith in front of my friends. Oh, they'll figure it out. Well, it sounds cool, but it's neither biblical nor effective. Amen? The reality is that as people see, they're going to come and ask and say, why are you the way you are? Listen, listen. Being, being an effective witness by living out our lifestyle is one of the most effective things we can do. However, that doesn't mean that we have the responsibility to share, but instead it gives us the opportunity to share. Okay? So being in friendships is not... The only thing, it gives us opportunity to share. Uh, there's some people who say this, I don't know how to bring up the topic. You know, how, how, do you, how do you bring up the topic? Listen, first and foremost, listen. Don't worry so much about, how do I, you know, you're sitting there looking for opportunity. No, just be a good listener. Listen, you'd be amazed at how much people want to talk, ask questions, have questions they raise. So being a good listener gives you that opportunity. And as you listen, what happens is there will be moments and opportunities. Jesus, John 4, woman at the Samaritan, uh, the Samaritan woman at the well. When there are opportunities that you might be able to make connections to. It's like me sitting at Starbucks. And I think I told you guys, John, who's a DJ, he's 25 years old, graduated from DePaul. You know, he asked me out of a sudden, he's like, what month were you born? I say, March. He goes, that means you're an Aries, I think. Is that some of the horoscopes? And I said, really? Like, you're into that stuff. Gave a great opportunity for me to talk to him about spiritual things. It was like two minutes long, but you know, there are other opportunities as you get to know people and you listen well. Hey, here's, here's one last thing that some people say. They say, I don't know enough. Well, who does? I mean, really? Do you know what I mean? I mean, who knows enough and, and, and completely? So, that, so, so what does that mean? Begin with what you do know. And one of the things that you do know is you have a story to share, don't you? That's one of the most powerful things, you know? People, look, you can't, if you feel pressure going, I have five minutes to, to talk about the theological accuracies of the gospel. Nobody can do that. I'm serious, you know? It takes time to process. You can't shove the gospel in five minutes. But what you can do is share a story of what Christ has done in your life and how he's changed you, which would give you an opportunity over time to share the gospel. Amen? Listen, you know, the, here's the reason why I share this. Can I just say this? 
many of us, you know why spiritually we're stunted and we're not growing? It's not a matter of what you do know, what you don't know. It's a matter of what are you doing with what you know. I'm, I'm telling you, right, to me, there's no more vital spiritual maturity growing thing than actually stepping out and sharing our faith. Does anybody relate to that? You know? So when's the last time you did that? When's the last time you did that? You know? Many of you guys come in here for spiritual food on Sundays. Maybe the food that God has for you is at your workplace, at your school, at your neighborhood, as you share. God has called us a mission. Now, as we look at this text in Acts chapter 17, um, one of the interesting things that we come across is, is, is you and I live in what people call a post-Christian culture. Now, th- how many of you guys are familiar with the Jay Leno, Jay Walking Clips? Remember when he would send people out and ask them some random, simple questions about the Bible? You guys have watched that? And, and, and the thing that we already know inherently as we know, to speak to our friends is that we live in a culture where knowledge of the Bible, biblical values, so on and so forth, is no longer an accepted norm. There are folks sitting here today, sitting here today, who know major sections of the Bible, that that don't know major sections of the Bible. We live in this post-Christian, secularized, pluralistic, many, many religions culture. I was sitting at Starbucks again with a girl who used to come to our church. Um, She was a graduate of DePaul. I don't know why I'm meeting with a lot of students from DePaul. And she says to me, she emailed me, she's like, Pastor Peter, I used to attend New Community. For two and a half years, I became a Christian. I think I was a Christian through DePaul. And I attended a new community for two and a half years, and now I'm an agnostic. So I go, wow, I'm doing a great job. <laughs> People come here and listen to me for each for two and a half years. like, I don't think I want to be a Christian anymore, you know? So she wanted to meet. And here's her story. Here's her story. Her story is she became a Christian. She comes from a non-religious spiritual background, became a Christian, freshman at DePaul, right? And she became a Christian. This is her story. Her sharing. She became a Christian because she was with a group of people, and she was really, really impressed by the community. University community, right? And she's like, now that I look back, I think I was just swept along. By the way, do you know how many times I hear that? And people contact me? University students, college students, staff workers, I'm telling you right now, there are students in your fellowship who you think are Christian. They're not. They're being swept along by this community thing. And she was never challenged with the specifics of what does it mean for me to be a Christian? Who is Jesus? What did he do? Do I believe it? And so she's like, I don't know anymore. I think I am. I don't know. So she came back. She's like, I tried on the jacket of agnosticism. It's not working either. So I'm stuck. So we had a great conversation. But her journey was then she tried Buddhism. She looked into Islam. I mean, multiplicity. That's the common person. Question Acts chapter poses is how do you do evangelism? In this world today, in this context today, when you can't just open the Bible and go, according to Romans chapter three and according to Romans chapter seven, and people go, what's Romans? How do you do evangelism? That's what this passage forces us to wrestle with. John Stott has written an amazing commentary, and I'm going to sort of follow his outline. He says, in this text, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see what Paul felt. We're going to see what Paul saw. We're going to see what Paul, where Paul went, and we're going to see what Paul did, and we're going to see what Paul said. Did y'all get that? Did y'all get that? Okay. Repeat it to me. We're going to see what, you see what? what Paul what? Felt. Felt. And then we're going to see what Paul saw. <laughs> All the Asians are like, I can do it. I can do it. Let me tell you. I was paying attention, okay? <laughs> Just, <laughs> what Paul saw. Yeah, I'll give you a star at the end, okay? What Paul saw. It's a great thing about our church. I get to pick on everybody, right? What Paul felt, what Paul saw, and then what Paul, 
where Paul went, sorry, thank you, where Paul went, and then what Paul did, and then what Paul said, okay? Uh, we're going to spend three weeks on Acts 17, okay? So I'm not going through all that today, so don't worry. Whew, okay? Look at verse 17. Here we go. Verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them, that's Silas and Paul, in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Athens, by this time, is the intellectual center. Now, it's no longer the political center nor the cultural center because Rome has taken over Greece. But Athens still remained the intellectual center. It's where Aristotle, Plato, Socrates once walked. It's the place where people still gave some props to saying that's where all the smart people, all the intellectual people, all the people that kind of want to wrestle with philosophical things that impact our society. Here's another thing about Athens you need to know. Athens, uh, it was said, it was easier to find a god than a human being in Athens. Population of Athens by this time was about 10,000. Historians say there was about 30,000 statues of idols. 10,000 people. 30,000 statues. So no joke. People said, actually, you couldn't walk around the city without bumping into an idol. Okay? The city was full of idols. Some of the streets were so full of idols that people say that they they estimate that more images were located in the city of Athens, more idols than in the old rest of Greece combined. Now, look at your text carefully. What did Paul feel? Say it. What did what? Distress. Distressed. Distressed. What does that word mean? We're going to park in that word for a moment. The word is paroxymo. Everybody say paroxymo. Paroxymo. That's the Greek word, okay? And it describes this. It describes, the word describes a deep mixture of both anger and indignation and sorrow. Paul is feeling indignation, but at sorrow. In other words, Paul was a very complex character. Can you tell by reading his letters? He's having these complex emotions arising. He's walking around the city and looking at all these idols, and he's experiencing paroxysma, which is indignation, anger, and then deep sorrow. Now, stop here. This is so important. When we talk about how to be effective evangelist witnesses, here's what we need to do. You know, many of us, when we, Christians and people that grew up in church, we're so practical that we're impractical. Here's what I mean by that. Let me give you an example. When we want guidance about what to do, you know, should I marry that person? Should I go to that school? Should I take the job? Many of us are like, what I need to know is how do I make that decision? I need to know. I need to know. So tell me how to make the decision. The Bible doesn't tell you how. You know what the Bible does tell you? The Bible says, here's how you become the kind of person who makes wise decisions. Do you know what the Bible says? See, the thing is, we don't like that. We're American. We're 25 years old. We have to know by tomorrow. <laughs> and the Bible's like, you can't know by tomorrow. It's not how it works. About, it's, about, it's not about how do I discern. He says, the Bible says, how do you become the kind of person who makes good, wise decisions? So the Bible talks about developing a prayer life. Oh, really? The Bible talks about saturating yourself in God's word. The Bible talks about how to go about becoming the kind of person. So here's what we're saying. What we're saying is when we talk about evangelism, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you guys, here are the five steps to reaching your culture. Because you're going to go, eh, that's kind of interesting. What I'm saying is, how do you become the kind of person who become effective witnesses? And the first thing that this text teaches us is, you got to feel what Paul felt. Now, what is it that Paul felt? Paroxymo. Everybody say that with me once again. Ready? Paroxymo. You know where that word appears? The word appears in the Greek version of the Old Testament several times. And the word appears in instances where it describes God's reaction towards idolatry. Let me give you an example. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1. 
I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I, here am I. All day long, I've held up my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations. Watch this. A people who continually, what's the word? Provoke paroxysmal to me, my very face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of bricks. God is speaking to the Israelites and he's saying, he's saying, you're worshiping idols. You're worshiping false deities that have no meaning, no life in them. And God says, as I see you worshiping them, I am provoked. I am experiencing paroxysmal. And the Bible says, the reason why God's experiencing paroxysmal is because he is a jealous God. Let me show you. Exodus chapter 34, verse 14. It says, do not worship any other God For the Lord your God is a jealous God. Now, you guys, how do you respond when you hear that God is a jealous God? And we don't like that. Because when we think jealousy, what do we think? We think the kind of self-centered, proud jealousy that says, you have something I don't, so I'm jealous. But when the Bible talks about God being a jealous God, it's a complex emotion. It is a paroxysmal. When God feels jealousy, the Bible says the jealousy that God feels is a pure jealousy, is a holy jealousy, it's a loving jealousy. Let me give you an example. You realize that, 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 that when you really and truly love somebody, it's a complex emotion of both sweetness Why are you laughing? <laughs> is it because it's true? Love is not just... Oh, so, love is both sweetness. You're melted. Your heart is melted. Oh, but love is also what? It's indignation. It's anger. It's thunder. It's both. It's both. Is it not? It's both. When you truly love somebody, if you've truly been in love, and you see that person ruining their lives, you see that person hurting themselves, furthermore, you see somebody else wooing that person to destruction, you don't just go, you go what? No! Love is sweetness and anger. It's both. It's both. If it's not both, you haven't experienced true love. Uh, My son... Parker goes to this school, Burr, in the city. This last year, we heard that there was this guy who dresses up as a clown, parks outside the school in a van, elementary school. And he has a criminal record of molestation. I don't know if it's correct or proper for a pastor to say this, but honestly, the thought went through my mind. If he does anything to my son, I'm going to kill him. I will kill him. Love is sweetness and anger. You tracking? God says, when I see my people worshiping idols, I'm experiencing paroxysmal. On one hand, it's thunder. It's anger. It's indignation. It's God going, no. No, why? The rebellion, the sin. He's holy. And he says, no, no, that's not right. That's not righteous. God feels anger, but at the same time, God feels what? Love and compassion. 
Why? He's saying, you weren't created for that. You weren't created to find meaning in that. I don't want you in that arms. I don't want you in his arms. I want you in my arms. I want you in my arms, not in that. That's meaningless. God feels paroxemo, anger, indignation, because he's holy, but love, because he's compassionate. Are you tracking? Paroxemo. That's what Paul's feeling. Paul is looking at idol worship and he's not just angry. See, people preach that Paul was distressed. He was angry. We got to get angry about the sin in our culture. That's why we get these stupid things like love the sinner but hate the sin. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. You know why? Because the person that says that, they're not experiencing paroxysmal. All they're feeling is anger. If all Paul felt was anger and indignation, he just went and, I'm angry here at the sin and the rebellion. Nobody would listen to him. You know why? Because he would have preached with condescension and disdain, or he would have said, you filthy sinners, I'm done. But he doesn't. What does he do? Anger. But he reaches out. He's gentle. He dialogues. He talks with them. Does this make any sense? Say amen if it does. Now, do you see how far we are from where Paul is? Here's the thing. Here's the thing. If we are not indignant about sin, you will not have the courage to speak up. But if all you feel is indignation, you will not have the compassion to reach out. Now, of course, many of us, we look at this and we're like, man, I am so far from Paul. Of course we are. We are, by our natural temperament, either truth, indignation, or we are, ah, oh, I love everybody. <laughs> by our natural temperament, 98% of us are either too truthful or too cowardly, and not both. You know who I love? I love Jesus. Why y'all clap? I don't understand. Why y'all clapping for like random things? I love Jesus. Do you know why? Do you know why? Because here's Jesus. Here's Jesus. Here's where you and I need to be. Here's Jesus. He goes to the death of his closest friend, Lazarus, at the funeral, John 11. And he goes up, right? And Mary, Mary. I don't like Mary. I can't relate to Mary. Mary comes up. She's crying. She says, Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother would be alive. And what does Jesus do? The Bible says he weeps. He just weeps. Then Martha, who I relate more to, comes and says the same thing. Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother would be still alive. And Jesus gives her a lecture and says, I am the resurrection and the life. <laughs> See, I relate to that. You know, I'm like, Jesus, bring it on, right? I, and so here's the thing. Jesus comes with what? Truth. But Jesus also comes with tears. And he says, when I see sin, I get indignant because I'm holy, but my heart is broken. My heart is broken. How in the world do we find that balance? Anybody feeling like discouraged already? Like that is like impossible balance for me, Peter. Can I just ask, how many of you are truth types? Raise your hands. Wow, okay. And rest of y'all are the tears types, right? Okay. Okay, that's what I figured. You know what Paul did? Paul says to the first Corinthians, he's writing to first Corinthians, right? And he says, when I came to you, I came with fear and trembling. I came fear and trembling. But then he says, I came not knowing anything but Christ and him crucified. Everybody look up here. Everybody look up here. Do you know why Paul was able to find that balance and why you and I have our time? 
Paul looked at the cross and he burned the cross into his heart. He burned the cross into his heart. He burned the cross into his heart. What's the cross? What's the cross? The cross is that place where perfect justice meant perfect love. The cross is that place where perfect justice, God's holiness, he's absolutely, infallibly, perfectly holy. He must punish sin and pour out his wrath on sin and evil and justice. But it's at the same place that we have a God who is perfectly, infallibly loving. And in his love, he chooses to sacrifice his own son to spare us. On the cross, perfect justice, indignation meets perfect love, compassion. And Paul says, I burn the cross into my heart. And the result is, and I preach on this every single week. When we burn the cross into our hearts, we become people who say, although I am more wicked and more sinful than I dared believe, I am more accepted and more loved than I dared hope at the same time. And it makes us courageous, compassionate. Here's how you know if you've experienced the cross. You think so highly of God and you think so highly of people that you want both of them in each other's arms. Paroxysmo. How you doing? How am I doing? Do you see why witness and evangelism is so ineffective? It will be if we're so cowardly that we can't speak up. But it'll also be ineffective if we're so disdaining and judgmental that they feel no love and compassion from us. You gotta have the feelings that Paul had. You gotta have the feelings that Paul had. And it doesn't work myself up, you know. It comes when the cross of Jesus Christ and the gospel is burned into my soul. It's burned into my soul. Paul was jealous for them. Paul was jealous. Can I just, real quick, three disciplines. Three disciplines that I think we need to regularly practice in order for the cross to be burned into our hearts and for us to experience paroxysma. Number one, live under the scriptures. Live under the scriptures. What do I mean? Paul is so sensitive to God's word and thus to God's attitudes and God's heart and God's ways that he couldn't help but participate in response the way that God did. Living under the, how often are you intentionally in God's word? How often, how intentionally do you allow the God to saturate your soul so that as Paul says, I have the mind of Christ. Wow, I have the mind of Christ. I have the mind of God. I have the mind of God. Live under the scripture. Second discipline, this is hard. You guys, listen. Second discipline, you got to live in obedience. What do I mean? You won't be indignant at other people's sins if you're not indignant about your own. Is this too close to home for some of us? You can't be indignant about God's holiness being offended if you yourself are not offended by the lack of holiness in your life. Are we people who pray, Lord, hallowed be your name, and yet when God's name is not hallowed and profaned, we feel nothing. B- 
Boy, this was a hard one, me meditating on this one. Not just for you, but for me. I'm like, God, maybe the reason why I'm not more indignant about sin in the world is because have I become lax and lukewarm about sin in my own life? And let me just address this real quick. If somebody, anybody here says, but I'm saved by grace and grace alone, so I don't have to obey. I don't have to be holy. The Bible is clear. The proof and the evidence that you truly understand grace will be a holy, obedient life. Amen? Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's an understanding of costly grace that results in a sacrificial life. Is this close to home for some of us? Hmm? Hmm? Yeah. Smack me upside the head like a two-by-four, right between the eyes. <laughs> Peter. Third, need the discipline of community. You need people who will lovingly correct us and challenge us when we veer away from the path of Christ. You got to welcome accountability. Can we? Hey, guys, can we be that community? And as we look at each other, you're going, you know what? You're all sweet. You're all grace. You're all compassionate. But there is lack of truth and boldness in your life. Hear it. Be able to hear it. And for those of us who are all bold, all truth, and all that, but no grace, have brothers and sisters speak into your life going, come on. Burn the cross into your heart until you become not just indignant, but loving. We need to have people in our lives. Discipline of community. Okay, let's move on. Let's move on. I, I, I just want to speak to those of you that are not Christian. By the way, can I, I just want to say this. For the next two more weeks, if you have non-Christian friends, I, I need you to bring them here because they need to hear the next two sermons as we go through Acts, uh, Acts 17. If you're not a Christian here, can I just speak to you for a second? Christians, if you too, listen. I, I recently read a study that said 75%, 75% people merit, uh, surveyed in America say they don't want a fundamentalist living next to them as their neighbor. And I'm going, wow, gee, they spent all that money to find that out. Should have called me. I would have told them. <laughs> so anyway, most Americans say they don't want a fundamentalist living next to them. And now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, and you're going, see, that's why I'm not a Christian, Peter. See, when I think Christians, I think fundamentalists. And when I think fundamentalists, I think harsh, judgmental, and I think people that are narrow-minded. That's why I don't want to be a Christian. If you've been burned by a fundamentalistic Christian who is all harsh, all judgmental, all just, you know, thunder and no love, I, 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 I want to say I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But I want to say this. What's the solution then? Because most of the people that I talk to, Starbucks, other places, most non-Christians go like this. The problem then is, in order for us to deal with this, is don't be so serious about Christianity. Your friends say, you know what they say? They say, you know what? Just be a little bit more moderate. Because when you become fanatical about the Christian life, fanatical about Jesus and the gospel and the cross, it makes you a fundamentalist. I want to say it very clearly here, because I say it a lot in our church. When you meet somebody who's harsh, judgmental, so on and so forth, it's not because they're fanatical about the gospel. It's because they're not fanatical enough about the gospel. Somebody say, Preach. It's because they're not fundamental enough. When you see somebody who's harsh and judgmental and fundamentalist and just, just judging people, it's not because they understand the cross. It's not because they understand Jesus and love Jesus so much. It's because they don't understand and love Jesus enough. Does that make sense? 
At the cross, perfect justice meets perfect love. And when you see that, how does Jesus change you? It changes you to becoming somebody who's not just bold in truth, but also speaking truth in love. So Jesus is somebody who says, I am the Lord of heaven and earth. But he also says, I will not snuff out a little burning candle, a bruised reed, just a bruised reed. I will not break. People in our society, they love Martin Luther King Jr., right? I wish they'd listen to him. I wish they'd pay attention to what he actually said and wrote. Because when, when he was speaking against the churches in the South, what did he say? He says, the problem with your Christians in the South, white Christians, is you're too religious, is you're too fanatical, is you're too fundamentalist about the Christian faith. No, what did he say? He said, the problem with the gospel, the problem with you guys is you're not more in line with the gospel. He says, the problem reason why you're racist, the problem reason why you are the way you are, it's not because you understand too much about the gospel, embrace too much of the Jesus. You don't understand the gospel enough and embrace the gospel so if you're not a Christian and you're going, that's why I don't want to, because if I become a Christian, I'm going to become. Know what it is that you're rejecting before you reject it. Christianity is not. You become too fanatical, it'll turn you into. You become too fanatical and you turn you into just like Jesus. The problem with many of us, it's not that we're fanatical, you guys. We're not extremist enough. Amen. It's not that we're fundamentalist. It's more fundamentalist enough. It all depends on what you're fundamental about. Amen. <laughs> I'm just preaching to myself this morning. I'm just amening to myself. All up into my, by myself up here, Michael. Thank you very much. Okay. All right. Believe it or not, we're almost done. Wow. John Stott says, we do not speak like Paul because we do not feel like Paul. And then he goes on his commentary. This is what it says. Because we do not see like Paul. That was the order. He saw, he felt, and then he spoke. What is it that Paul saw? The Bible says in verse 16, he was greatly distressed, paroxysmal, to see that the city was full of idols. And to which many of us are going, well, of course, Paul. He saw idols. Idols were everywhere. Of course he saw it. No, no, no. The Greek word for saw, like, take a look, observe, is this Greek word blepo, blepo. Just take a look, saw. But what Paul uses three times in this text to say see is he uses the word theoreo, from which we get the English word what? Theorize. Paul's walking around. He's looking at the idols. He's not going, I see idols. He's looking at it. He's going, he's theorizing. He's looking underneath. He's looking intently going, what's, what's that? What's that? He's looking intently. Here's what Paul saw that we need to see. In everything as he walked around the city, architecture, marvels, he saw idol worship underneath everything. The reason why Paul was effective at speaking to his culture and the reason why what would make us speak to our culture is realizing this. When we see our culture today, it's not the bad things that's the problem in our culture. It's the good things that have become ultimate things. The problem in our culture is not the bad. We think, what's the problem? It's the nasty, nasty, you know? It's pornography. Oh, that's bad. You know, it's, it's, it's premarital sex. It's drugs. It's, no, no, no. The thing that is holding our culture captive is not the bad things. It's the good things that have become ultimate things. It's the good things that have become the ends. It's the good things that have become all-encompassing things to us. That's what's wrong with our culture. 
The problem with our culture, your friends, me, the problem with you and me is not that we're involved. It's that we have taken good things, good gifts from God, and we have elevated them to a godlike status and said, that's what gives me meaning. I can't live without it. I can't live without it. Effective evangelism entails you and I becoming familiar, well acquainted with this idolatry in our city. You and I can't share the gospel effectively if we're not familiar with the idols and gods that underlie why people do anything that they do. What's idolatry? Let me put up definition. You guys, this, this should be familiar to you. Talk about this a lot in our church. An idol is something that what you rely on instead of God for your salvation. Idolatry is the act of promoting creative things, goals, relationships, pursuits into absolute and ultimate values and then replacing God with them or worshiping God. Oh, this is a big one for us Christians. Worshiping God in accordance with them. So you worship God. You say you believe in God. You say you quote unquote serve God. And yet underlying all of that is idolatry. And unless you and I understand and know the idols that underlie everything in our culture, that it's not the bad things and evil things necessarily, but it's the good things that have been elevated to a godlike that is like, for example, personal idols. Here are some. How about money? You can't walk around downtown and tell me you don't see this God. By the way, it's 2009, but child sacrifice is still in vogue. People in business, jobs are set up in such a way that they say, you won't succeed unless you sacrifice your family. Don't tell me child sacrifice isn't alive and well in 2009 in America civilized you know us civilized modern people yeah i'll sacrifice my children and my family any day for this what are some other idols romance oh brother i'm not even going to explain because y'all are like yep move on thank you very much thank you for that smack now we can move on romance no no let me say a word or two please let me say a word or two okay do you realize that we walk into these dark places called theaters right and we sit through an hour and a half Essentially, advertisement for the God of idolatry of romance. And we weep and we cry and we have this huge, you know, sort of emotional experience. And we walk on and what do we do? We look at our boyfriends, our girlfriends and saying, I can't live without you. We look at these relationships and we say, you give me ultimate meaning in life. I don't know what I would do without you. And by the way, you're going, oh, that's not my idol. Please, look at the way you react when, when you break up or somebody dumps you or... It's not just disappointing. Are you, come on, you guys. Half of, my, half of my counseling cases are people walking in today going. <laughs> and I'm going, let me guess. <laughs> let me guess. How did you know? I don't know. I don't know. I just, just <laughs> guess. <I don't> <laughs> Moving on. Knowledge. Knowledge is another idol. You know what's funny? You know what's funny in our church like this? There are those of you guys who go, poo-poo, money, ta, romance, ta. You know what your God is? It's knowledge. You find your identity in the fact that you know stuff. You're smart. And you thumb your nose down at people who don't know as much. That's what gives you identity. Artists, self-expression, it's another idol. I'll talk about that moment artistic community. Children, parents, can I just tell you something? If your entire hopes in life is founded on your children, you know, you know what I should do? I'm sorry to pick on Asian Americans again. Can I just, Asian Americans, I need some of you guys to write letters to parents, okay? Not your parents, but parents and say, this is what happens when you put all your hopes in your children. <laughs> this is how they turn out. Don't do that. 
Personal idols, moving on. Approval, approval. You live for somebody to affirm you. You live for somebody to affirm you, to say that you're competent, you're helpful, you're good. And it's interesting because whoever is the object of your approval, when they don't approve of you, you just go nuts. You have a hard time saying no. You have a hard time drawing healthy boundaries. You're often bitter and angry because you don't get the affirmation that you're longing for. Cultural idols. Perfectionism. (laughs) Asian Americans. It's not just Asian Americans. I think it's something about our church culture too. Educated, you know, a lot of you guys college educated. This is one of those things. Perfectionism. (laughs) And I'm preaching to myself. If perfectionism is your idol, you know what? You don't like working with other people. You have a hard time working with other people. You're very short with them, very impatient with them. They don't quite do it like the way you want to do it. And what do you do? Instead of extending grace, you get mad. You get angry. You cut them off. And you are freaky about wanting to control your life. Freaky. Individualism, let's move on. I, I don't have to move. Uh, I, I, individualism, idols. I hope, you know what? Here's the thing. As you're hearing these idols, if you were sitting there going, oh, yeah, yeah, she needs to hear that one. Oh, yeah, he needs to hear that. Oh, this one is, you know. You are so. Uh, how many of y'all are doing that right now as I was going through this? Uh, raise your hand. Let's be honest, church. Yeah, exactly. Please check yourself. Individualism, artists. I'm looking over to the band. Self-expression. We've turned this into religion in our culture. It's called this cult of self-expression, right? And what our culture says, you can't censor anything. If you censor anything, it's no longer art, which I want to go, it's garbage. Garbage is garbage. Since when does my personal freedom and whatever I want to do take precedence over anything? Amen? So if I feel like doing it, well, then it must be right. That's what our culture says. Self-expression, what I want to do. There's no ultimate reality. It's what I want to do. Cult of self-expression. Individualism. Religious idols. Moving on. Truth. Some of y'all need to hear this. Some of y'all hear this. Truth is your idol. Like knowing the right doctrine rather than the work of Jesus. The Bible calls you a fool. Proverbs says you're a fool if you find your identity in the fact that you know truth and you're judgmental and harsh. And you don't extend grace. The scoffer is always sure he's right, always disrespectful, always disdainful, always mocking towards his opponents. By the way, if you want to know where scoffing, scoffers are rampant, check out blogs on the internet. Because the more foolish they are, the more traffic they have. Spiritual gifts can be made an idol. I know that I'm somebody because I'm good at fill the blank. Morality. We talk about this in our own church. Religious idol, you find your identity in your goodness, your morality. Conscience, can I just say this last one, conscience? When I hear somebody say, I know God forgives me, but I don't, give, I don't forgive myself. I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. That means that there is somebody more powerful than God in your life that's saying to you, you can't be forgiven. Wow. There's an idol in your life that you're saying. And it can be your conscience saying, my conscience 
is greater than what God says. No wonder 1 John 5 says, therefore, God is greater than our conscience. Why do I share this? Mark it down. You're dreading sitting up front, aren't you? Set up front and said, everybody come up front. Somewhere, someplace, at some point, every single one of us will come to grips with the fact that these idols that we worship will die on us and will not come through. Every single one of us in this room Someplace, somewhere, we'll come across this truth, this reality, that the creator God that we worship can never die, but these idols that we worship can and will die. Good news, bad news. Bad news? What good news is? It's almost impossible to experience this without experiencing disappointment. Because you can't be told that you're worshiping an idol. You've got to experience it and know that something has inordinate power over you. Give me the lesson, Peter. I think I know what my idol is. I'm going to go home today, repent of it, and move on. No, it doesn't work that way. That thing that you have hold on, it will come. And here's the thing. Here's the thing that you will realize. You will realize as you come to whatever that idol is that you have placed as an ultimate value, you will realize that it is absolutely unrelentingly unforgiving. What do I mean? If you fail to get it, fail to keep it, fail to maintain it, it will devastate you and be absolutely, utterly unforgiving. And the worst thing is, if you do get it, you'll realize at the end of the day, your soul is not big enough for it. You'll get it and you realize, oh my gosh, sex, materialism, relationships, money, career. I have built and spent my entire life on this. And you get to the destination and you realize, ah, it's not big enough for my soul. Why do you feel meaningless? You feel meaningless in life when that thing that you have built entire meaning on is no longer there. Why do you feel hopeless? Because the thing that you have built your entire hope and utter foundation on is no longer there. Why are you angry at God? God, God's going, Paroxemo! That doesn't have life. It can't satisfy you. It'll never quench your thirst. It'll never meet the needs of your heart. You're selling your body and prostituting yourself with that idol. It will never give you what you're looking for. And every single one of us in here at some point will come to a place where we realize that is my God. And it's not you. You're not a Christian. I wish I had faith like a Christian. You already have faith. It's just not Jesus. Who is it? Who is it on? Can I give you a little secret? Do you know why the point of my message every Sunday is exactly the same? Y'all keep coming back, so I'm just going to keep preaching it, you know what I'm saying? Until it just completely disappears. Do you know why every single Sunday, here's a little preaching secret. I wanna, I, I'm, I'm like letting you into my little closet here. I have this thing called recipe for gospel wakefulness. Okay, here's what that is, cooking, cooking metaphor. The people that really get the gospel, understand the gospel, and this is, you know this is you, because whenever you hear the gospel, your eyes don't glaze over like, oh, the gospel. You don't get it. Or the gospel like, huh? 
you, you don't get it. Or if you, if you really and truly get the gospel, you get the gospel because a perfect storm has come into your life. And here it is. The perfect storm is a combination of personal brokenness. It's you coming to that place going, that idol is dead. And I've got no place to go. Coupled with the preaching and hearing of the gospel. Who Jesus is and what he has done. Ignited by, here's a third, 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 third part of this recipe. The Holy Spirit. Ah, I love the Holy Spirit. Come in and igniting that on fire. Gossip recipe for gospel wakefulness is personal brokenness, preaching of the gospel, Holy Spirit. The reason why I preach the same message every Sunday is because I don't know when you're going to walk into this room personally broken. Because when you walk in here personally broken at the fact that your idol just died on you and you hear the gospel preached, and the Holy Spirit sets it on fire. Result? <gasps> I get it. And not, and not, not again, gospel versus religion. Here's my question. As you look at your friends, are you discerning, oh, the perfect storm's coming. They're at that place where they're saying, I have built my entire life on this, and it's gone. It's gone. What would happen if they had friends who loved them as Jesus loved them, with paroxysmal, indignant, and yet heartbroken, loving jealousy that said, ah, and just planted seeds of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done, who he is, what he's done, always. This is who he is, this is what he's done. Personal brokenness, gospel, Holy Spirit takes that result gospel wakefulness. One last thing and then we're done. If you've been delivered from your idols, by the way, I don't think we do it completely. There's nobody in this room who goes, I have been completely set free from idolatry. Your idolatry is, is you're a liar. That's what you are. <laughs> Nobody, I don't care who you are, nobody in this room will completely, is that good news? Is that good news? I hope it is. Nobody in this room says, I am done with idolatry. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. No, nobody does. You know what it is? You know what it is? Not in this lifetime. Mature Christians are people who keep digging, 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 uprooting, and then planting Jesus, planting Jesus. Keep digging, keep digging, keep digging, planting Jesus, planting Jesus. Keep digging, keep digging. Because the key to being free from idolatry is not, I obey. Key to idolatry is not, I outwardly change my behavior. Key to idolatry is you see Jesus and you go, I am ravished. I am blown away. You are the most beautiful thing in the universe. Why would I want that when I have you? When I have you. The last thing that I would say is this, because there's some of you guys, one scenario, an artist comes up to a musician and says, Peter, I used to be an, I used to be, 
I used to be, I, I used to be one of those artists. You know, I found my identity. I found my significance in art. You know, so, so I was one of those people because art in itself is not sin. Art in itself, but worshiping art is because I'm finding my significance. identity is idolatry. And you say, but I've been delivered from that. I'm no longer that. I'm no longer that. And so here's what you do. You look at other artists and you're like, oh, man, look at that. They're finding identity, meaning, and significance in that. There's no life there. Look what they're doing with their lives. Oh, my goodness. And what do you do? You withdraw. You withdraw. You withdraw. And you don't enter their world. Can I just tell you something? If you have to flee from what you used to worship as idolatry, you're still enslaved to it. You can't just be emancipated. You got to be emancipated from your emancipation. Does that make sense? Andy, does that make sense for Northwestern students? I did that because he desperately yearns for my approval. So I just wanted to. (laughs) It's so not true. He could care less about me. It's not true. If you are an artist or anybody, businessman, listen, listen, the culture needs you, the world needs you. But if you're one of those people say, I used to do that, I used to be that. And I, if you need to be removed and you have no interaction with them, you are still enslaved to that idol. So what do you do? You go before God, keep digging, keep digging, plant Christ, plant Christ. Keep digging, keep digging, plant Christ, plant Christ. Keep digging, plant Christ. And then you look at your culture with discerning eyes, paroxysmal, and your heart is filled with indignant and compassion. And what that causes you to do, you go back into that world of artists, business people, students, whatever have you, where you know that people are worshiping those idols and those gods. And what do you do? You with boldness and courage say to them, those idols will not give you life. Those idols will not satisfy you. Those idols will not meet the deepest longing of your heart. And you do it with compassion, gentleness, and in love. And they hear you. And then you say to them, all the treasures of this world says, you got to pay with your life to get it. We have a treasure. His name is Jesus who paid with his life to get you. Is that good news? That's wonderful news. Bow your heads with me. I don't know. I don't know where you're at. Jillian, you can come on out. I don't know where you're at. Guys, just, just want you to know, we don't, there's going to be no final song, no song of response. I need you to just chill right where you're at. Just put whatever it is that you're doing. Put, put your stuff down and just, just for a moment. Just for a moment. Because I want us to pray. I want us to pray. I, I, I want us to, to respond and to interact with our God. As I'm preaching, some of you are visibly and clearly something in you is stirring because perhaps God is speaking and saying, I'm not the God of your life. That is, he is, she is. And you're sitting there today and saying, God, what do I do? What do I do? I, 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 I know there's no life there. What do I do? The great news of Jesus Christ is that he died for your idols. He died for your idolatry. Don't you see? He, he, he went to the cross for your rebellion, for your sin. So that he would become, as the Bible says, our righteousness, our life.
our salvation. Our salvation. Spend this moment this morning confessing, perhaps repenting and saying, God, I've done that. I've done that. I am doing that. And I acknowledge it to you. I confess it to you. And then here's what I want you to do. Right where you're sitting, nobody's looking, nobody's looking. Your, your, your hands that are clenched right now, your hands, you know, that, that's tightly held, I need you in a symbolic way saying, God, help me to let go. I need you right where you're at. Open your hand out. Why? Open your hand out, your palm out, and say, God, I don't, I don't want to hold on to this. I don't want to hold on to this. Give me the strength and the willingness to uproot this in my life. Give it to God. 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 I let go. I let go. I let go. God, to those of us that are sitting here this morning, it's not enough just to dig, God. We want to plant Christ, the love of Christ. We want to plant. We want the cross of Jesus Christ and the gospel to be burned into our hearts, to be burned into our souls. So we could think like you, feel like you, see like you, talk like you, act like you, ah, live like you in every way. Free. For it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has died. It is for freedom. And to those who are in Christ, you are free indeed. You are free indeed. Hallelujah. Christ has set us free. Pray for my brothers, sisters, and myself, God. Be with us as we live this week for your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen, amen. Guys, if you guys could pray for me this week and the next week, Acts 17 is incredibly important. And just like I did today, I'm going to speak specifically to folks who are non-Christian as I look at this text. Invite your friends, pray for your friends, bring them here. Have a great week, you guys. We'll see you back here next Sunday, okay? Take care.